welcome to the Modern MBA podcast with Marie Kerwin and Kristen Rossi. Our mission is to help MBAs coming from, going into, or merely considering more unorthodox career paths. We're a community to find inspiration and share stories. Today we're speaking with Gladys Lim, who after a successful career in beauty FMCG, used her MBA to land a role in Shiseido's global corporate strategy team. If you can, please tell us about yourself, your name, where you did your MBA, and why you chose to do an MBA. So uh, I'm Gladys. I actually Malaysian-born Chinese, and I did my MBA in a Warwick Business School. Uh, actually started in uh, in London, and some module I had to go to the main campus in Coventry. So the reason why I chose to, you know, motivation to do the MBA is because I reached to a point of my career, I think I lack of some, the, the rigor in terms of my thinking. It's not so much for to pursue the global networking because I was already in the global positions like uh, work based out in London and also uh, have a career uh, previously in like in Singapore, Malaysia. So for me really is to really sharpen my um, strategy thinking skill and also uh, get some of the downtime from like academic world to help me uh, you know beef up some of the, the skill that I, I think I was lacking that time. Uh, and so then your career has been focused around advertising, marketing, brand management, and strategy and you've worked with Unilever, Johnson & Johnson and, and Johnson & Johnson in their Asia-Pacific markets uh, based out of Singapore. And now you work in Tokyo in Shiseido's global corporate strategy team. Can you walk us through your career to date? My career uh, is not like, a, uh, you know, most of the FMCG people would like start off as management trainee or one straight line. I, I, I kind of like, um, yeah, like back and forth and then did a full circle. So uh, in my early beginning of my career, I actually is, uh, I was a regional art director for O&M, Ogivia Mato. So it's very much solely into advertising, packaging, branding and stuff. But I reached that uh, to, I think I reached to a bottleneck of my career that I no longer excited or passionate about chasing awards in advertising, the busy glamours of uh, the advertising. And I switched my career to like um, to FMCG to mainly do lots of like, new product developments and brands and marketing, um, you know, for uh, several categories at that time. I uh, started with uh, RTD food and beverages and also personal care in face care as well, specifically. Yeah, and then subsequently with Johnson Johnson, I was with uh, eye care category for contact lenses, yeah, color and the, the medical contact lenses. Yeah. How did you end up in Tokyo with, with Shishido? It wasn't by design. It was purely by luck. <laughs> yeah, it was by luck. My my career is like my 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 past uh, twenty years has been zigzag around in Europe and Asia, Europe and Asia. It was by by luck. So in the middle of my MBA program, I actually had a job in the, in London, right? So, but because of Brexit and then um, the company. Uh, economies wasn't really that great because most of the six over sixty percent of the the revenue contributions are from uh, America, so they didn't pack the currency. So anyway, uh, I was uh you know looking for um um career opportunity in 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 the UK so that I could pursue continue my MBA uh with no disruption, 
but I am not from that region. So I had to like uh, also, you know, check uh, in Singapore whether I could uh, say, like do it, um, you know, continue my last dissertations um, back in Singapore. And in Singapore, it's a relatively small country and their main GDPs are mostly on professional service like financial sector. And it's really a big magnitude effects. So when I reached there, I couldn't get hold of anything substantial, like sustainable that going. Like I've been doing consultancy uh, work for startup. And I think, um, you know, I didn't get that kind of a, a position match and also uh, the, the right compensation package. So, and I know one of my ex-colleagues uh, back in Unilever that based here in Shiseido. So I reached out and I said, hey, can you, uh, you know, introduce me to Shiseido regional office in Singapore? But the team in Singapore thought like, okay, um, you know, my skills are much more uh, suitable for global team. Hence, I move here. That's brilliant. So it really worked out worked out well. Yeah, it worked out well. I, I guess like um for Shiseido, uh at the moment they are going through lots of uh, transformational projects because it's a hundred and sixty five years company, lots of legacy. And they needed new blood from, you know, international candidates. And my career back in like FMCG is really it's really transferable, and um, and also I did my um master degree in luxury brand in back in Milan. So I, I took the opportunities, and uh, it's been a year here in Tokyo. Um, uh, I'm enjoying it so far. Not not until the coronavirus uh, pandemic hits us, and <laughs> so yeah, it feels a bit like a working holiday right now for me <laughs> from home. Then I get the opportunities to go out to explore a bit of Japan. Without having to go to office, yeah. It's the first time in a very long time the entire world is sort of in the same situation. Yeah, so, I mean, like, it is what it is. And we have lots of, like, uh, you know, response, uh, responsive kind of a strategy to plan mid-term, short-term, uh, because I think it hits a lot of uh, industry as well. Uh, for luxury brand uh, specifically, because the, it really changed a lot. Like, 360 changed the whole consumer behavior. People are no longer able to go to a department store or travel retail channel like in the US <laughs> one after another department store are filing for you know chapter 11 bankruptcy so it hits a lot of uh, our business uh, for luxury brands like fashion and cosmetic here do you find this is okay, this is more of an industry question do you find that the purchases have moved moved online and that that channel is successful or do you find that channel is still struggling uh yeah oh yeah uh, online definitely um you know we and manufacturers like the luxury brand we uh, i think the the consensus is we try not to go into online so much because online is not a channel that you can build customer experience yes you can collect data but it's not so much of a premium and luxury experience for the customer and you can't build the brand love uh, but I think it's also um, we are in the weird uh, timing now it's a consumer that demand the shift so consumers shift so most of the brands um, are luxury uh, you know luxury conglomerates and big um, uh, personal care beauty care we have no choice to have to <laughs> follow where consumer go so <laughs> so yeah uh, it's just that we find try to like everybody are trying to um, you know, figured out how to not dilute the brand aura. You know, you don't, you can't lose that kind of brand romance and the magic. Otherwise, 
uh, it will hurt the brand equity um, and also to demand a kind of um, a pricing, um, you know, willingness to pay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So they're, they're really interesting aspects. I also did the, the the module in Milan and yeah, that that digitalization and going online for the luxury brand, it's really a big, I wouldn't say an issue, but a hot topic, how to do it so that you don't damage the brands, that you can keep the price point, keep it luxury. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It is uh it is not as easy as like the mass market how we do omnichannel. Uh it is still a a, a kind of like um consumer like shoppers still want to experience that um yeah, you need essentially is to go out shopping to be seen and you know, touch and feel. So it's not easy to replicate on online. Uh but again, like skincare uh fragrance that you know for recurring purchases. Like if you, for example, you've been using the products for like loyal, loyal to the products, loyal users. So you, you know where you get it, you know what you want. It, it's just um, uh, on like the new launches, like for example, new fragrances and makeup and, you know, new seasonal wear. It, it will be harder because uh, you, ne- you need to try it out and test it out first. And, you know, contactless uh, technology is now everybody are trying to deploy and without you know how without that human connections and try out the products, it's really hard to, to to try out whether or not you know this color suits you. And yeah, so it is a it is a whole industry right now are trying to figure out what's the best way. And it's not so much of a reactive basis like short term, but we had to also make sense in long run. So in 2017, you did the executive MBA program with WBS in the UK. What was your MBA experience like? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, like, uh, I, I think I was the only one, like, brand person in the same cohort. They are not from the, you know, traditional MBA candidates, like what you mentioned earlier, consulting firm or investment banker. Uh, <laughs> so... Yeah, it's a bit like, oh, you know, you're from advertising or you know, all this fashion, glitzy glam, like, oh, so sexy. Yeah. <laughs> and then what t- kind of uh, sentiments or insight you can, you know, bring into the classroom. So I think uh, overall, it is a good experience. Um, uh, the first cohort back in the, for, for the EMBA program and only three ladies in, in that uh, in the cohort, I think second cohort. So yeah, first first year, second cohort, only three ladies, and the 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 dean and then the 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 university like uh keep telling the guys like, hey Tonda, you have to like you know uh you know we promote diversification, we promote gender equality, <laughs> but what I figured out like the you know those those guys from like uh conventional uh, career track like investment bankers and all that, they still have that kind of like very male dominant uh, way of um. Uh, working and work ethic is built into the program itself. So the some some of the discussions we can see that it's a bit uh <laughs> it's a bit um not appropriate. But I I do speak it up because I think that you know um they can't treat that um classroom as separately because even though it's like outside the outside your office area, but you still have to be more uh, you know professional in the sense so i think overall it's quite good but i mean i went into the mba entered into the mba without 
expecting much of like uh, global networking because I know that it will be different kind of candidates that attend the program. For me, it's really to to beef up my financial acumen, so which I did that. So yeah, it was good. It's really funny that that you're men- you're mentioning of financial achievements um, and knowledge that has been such a a common thread across our interviews is is really beefing up that knowledge and and it was I think it was the same for me that was one of the big things I went into the MBA to achieve is to learn that side yeah because it's not a um cheap and uh, cheap program it's quite hefty price tag so uh, my thinking is why do I have to go to learn something I'm already practicing I I need to get something that complement my my luck, you know, uh, complement my skill set, which I think, um, well, you know, uh, Royal Business School is famed for uh, finance track. So that's why I think I made the decision to join them. Yeah. Brilliant. So then this kind of leads perfectly into, into the next question. So coming from Beauty FMCG, what skills did you bring and which did you gain? I think for FMCG and be- in the beauty and fashion world, um, you know, a lot of like strategies, uh, yes, we do have to make sound decision based on, you know, data and lots of financial, uh, you know, rigorous in terms of uh, validated strategy or implementations. But this, this kind of sector are very much into, you base your consumer first. So consumer empathy is like utmost crucial. And oftentimes, like people in like uh, the candidates or, you know, uh, the, the, the peers from investment bankers, they look into hard number without knowing, uh, you know, consider that kind of um, soft, uh, you know, uh, connections about your shoppers or, or consumer or, you know, or in their mind is customer. So I think the marketing aspect of it, I really brought that uh, like, into another next uh, deeper level of discussion in when whenever we have like a group assignment or group assignments or projects. So yeah, the skill that I gain, I think, um, you know, MBA is a is like a, a forum that you have meet a lot of people from everywhere and also different sector, and I think it opens my um, eyes to some of the very traditional um sector like oil and gas and you know commodities and things like that it's not on my um you know day to days or or in my environment or my context or even my close friends i i don't have i don't have like mingles with people socialize with people outside so much outside you know this few adjacent of adjacent sector so it kind of opens my eyes about how they run their business models you know how uh, how what kind of like um struggles and challenges in their respective uh, yeah sector? Hmm. So Gladys, related to to what we've just kind of talked about um with the the skills that you felt that you brought to the MBA, um for people who work in your sector or your field, what do you think um are the most important skills for career progression? Well, it is good that you have the kind of hard skill set, like the theory, you know, the financial um, uh, acumens or business acumens. That will definitely help. But I think to be able to thrive in in this kind of a heavy innovation industry, uh, creativity is very important and passion is also very important. 
So because otherwise, um, it will be hard to to thrive in this kind of industry without having the, the love for it because you people might think it is a very vain business. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, why are you guys doing selling lipstick and <laughs> fragrance? And, you know, there's so much art behind it, so much numbers that we need to crunch. But without 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 the passions, I think, um, yeah, it, it puts someone from automotive industry uh, maybe they can thrive in supply chain sector, in supply chain department or strategic planning or financial depart, uh, departments, mm. but, <laughs> but then uh, not in the innovation or R&D or stuff like that. It will be hard, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you will not be able to appreciate the kind of uh, uh, complexity that we talk about vanity factor <laughs> yeah I think you're so right about that creativity piece it's kind of for these sort of sectors it, it's yeah. really essential isn't it yeah it is because when you compare to like automotive industry or like uh you know mobile phone and I, uh, apple for example you have like maybe in two years time you got one product launches and all that but in this industry and fashion is really fast mm. so, so and then some some it's just not so much of a number crunching it's just, it's just go with the fat go with what is trending now so you know mm. uh yeah yeah so you got to strike the right balance yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Great. Um, and so some of the uh, many of the people that, that kind of listen um, may never have worked in like the Asia Pacific region. Um, Kristen mm. and I both have. Um, and so we know it's kind of a, a really exciting environment to be in. And there's lots of opportunities. Um, it'd be really interesting to hear your tips about kind of doing business in the region. Mm. And obviously, um, so, for example, I've worked in um, actually both in South Korea and in Singapore and know that mm-hmm. those two markets are very different from each other themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it would yeah. be really good to hear, um, yeah. yeah, hear your thoughts on, on both Southeast Asia and, and Japan. Yeah. So you guys have worked here in this region and you've got the taste that you know this is very different culture nuances. Mm. Uh, I think for uh, the audience out there that uh, haven't stepped foot or worked in, in Asia, so... Um, you know the tips for me to to try to get into this uh this region is start with English speaking countries. Mm. So go to Hong uh well Singapore, Hong Kong, but Hong Kong is um yeah it's a a bit of a challenge situation uh climate right now. Mm. I think Singapore, Shanghai would be good uh, good chance to go even like Southeast Asia like Malaysia, Thailand because English speaking uh you know the literacy there are uh, yeah comprehension levels is. Is is so much better mm. than compared to some of the countries like you know um Korea, South Korea, or Japan, mm. or even like Philippines is a good good one to start. But I think to every as as much as uh, you know as um cliche as it may sound that a lot of people say oh you know come to Asia and things are wow here a lot of opportunities. I think opportunities are everywhere globally you just have to find your right usp to cut in you know to offer to uh the company at the right right um right time Mm. and i think the other part of it is the you know understand you know be prepared that it will not be normal as compared to what you experience back home. Mm. Um, I I work in Anglo-Saxon companies in my uh, previous jobs and all that. This is the first company that is an Asians Asians company, mm. and I still have to navigate between all this um, cultural nuances. One is to uh, you know 
recognize it and the other part is to really take what is good and you know leave out the bad and you, you find you have to find a sweet spot to to be able to you know respect them as well because essentially it's different way of working mm. and and different countries in Asia has different practices as well um, like Malaysia Indonesia is a bit chill out and then really like slow down and <laughs> and and then you know like the 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 responsiveness are not as fast as compared to Singapore or Hong Kong yeah. where you, you can have like expect them to like, wow, so switch on in terms of on their email response, but not so much like in Vietnam or, you know, this emerging market. Mm. So <laughs> they still require some face-to-face time or a bit of like, uh, yeah, a bit of small talk and relationship building. Mm. Uh, where else like very, very prof- like kind of professional setting or um, how would I say like, if, if like measure about effectiveness like uh from the like west usually you, you go in people will expect what to do uh most of the time and you don't have to prescribe or tell them your instruction mm. is it right but some countries in asia you still have to give instructions and prescribe that i say it even though i'm asian so <laughs> I, I know <laughs> yeah, you have to tell them and an operational manual yeah this is your motors operandi that followed it and we still have to do that and sometimes i think uh, I often see a lot of like uh, expert of foreigner from the West and you know come into the Asia. Uh, maybe twenty years ago, go to all all to gung ho about it. Um, mm. it doesn't get the kind of uh, productivity. You know, they scare them away. Yeah. <laughs> they, they will like not even to like help you. You know, help out or willingly do that. So yeah, even though the the body physically is there in office, but there's no quality in the uh, output. So yeah, can't be too gung ho. You have to be a bit softer. Um, the dancing between you know that kind of social and work kind of a very intricate um and bizarre <laughs> bizarre bizarre way. Yeah, uh, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that actually because one of the one of the things that I found quite challenging about working in Korea was the the fact that the um the office socializing is so important and it can it can really take up a lot of time. Um like depending on the company you work for, it's not uncommon for teams to kind of go out three or four nights a week and like you said, it's yeah, it's you kind of have to because that's where you're going to find out the how people really feel about things and everyone kind of you know relaxes but it's also it's quite hard because it has a significant impact on your personal life um and depending on the company people drink a lot at these things um and it can be really hard is it is it like that in japan like is there is the kind of out of work socializing really important yeah and I think you work in South Korea. I heard a lot of people respond, like feedback is uh, they will never tell you the truth in the meetings, right? They will not speak up in the meetings, but you have to do it afterwards, like go to karaoke or mm. you go drinking session. That's where you ask, like you get a feedback from the team and you know what's going on in their mm. mind and your, their, their, their work, what's the challenges they face in the projects. So I think it's, um, yeah, some some of this <laughs> kind of... um cultural uh way that they've been passed along from generation to generation if they still practice that yeah mm-hmm. yeah the socializing is really important uh it's it's not playing favoritism or you know uh you you it's not to the extent that you won't get promoted because you don't have enough face time with your team 
it's not it's some yeah. some some very traditional companies. Yeah, I think it still have this kind of notions, but like the bigger company like Shiseido, I don't think there is uh, so much stuff so obvious. But that definitely the clock in your phone, you know, spend enough FaceTime in the with the team does help. Um, whether or not it create the false sense of belongings or you know to to obligatory be there, but I think yeah, it's it's kind of similar context. But for me, I mean, I I'm kind of blessed. I work in a global team, and um, most of my teammates are foreigner. So we 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 either have a family here or we don't. So our kind of socializing is already working, and working is socializing for us because the communities or the expat communities are small. So you know, we just only have a few of us to hang out. So. <laughs> So it doesn't make so much of a break, uh, you know, uh, yeah. But I guess for like a Japanese in Japanese in, in, in working in Japan, yeah, you you, ha- you kind of like get penalized if you don't, um, you know, clock in enough time, FaceTime after for the social after after so work social hours, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So that's why I think um, you know, coming from the West. Uh, we have a very clear, distinctive like uh, line that hey, this is my free time. I'm clocked out from work, so you know you can't bug me until Monday. But uh, I guess it's like you have to <laughs> have to find ways to make it work. Otherwise, otherwise would be yeah, would be would be tricky. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting that point you made about um, being there as an expat. Because I was thinking that a few days ago, that when you're living abroad, your work, a lot of the time, your work colleagues, and, and then, of course, the friends you make in the country become your family. And so in some sense, that work, that work-life that work balance gets a little bit blended because in some sense, your colleagues are your friends too, <laughs> and your family. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, it's uh, mostly, um, yeah, merged into, into that um, because... I think expat community in any, uh, uh, like all these emerging countries is really, really small. Um, it's not like in London, you know, you you have pretty much people are uh you know, um you know migrated or moved there will be as default as same as Londoners. So <laughs> there is no background reference or too much uh you know that hold back or you know there is no uh obligatory that I have to hang out with my tennis squad and the next day you can't go to your bowling yeah something like that. But uh, yeah, that's that's a bit different. So I guess for being an expert, uh, this is a very um, important skill to be able to recognize it uh, without complaining too much. <laughs> we complain about it. Everyone complain, you know, as you move to too many countries and you work so many working abroad, and of course you have like you know your utopia or your ideal situation to be but you can't complain too much i i, I think you just have to be very clear and concise that what you want to do uh what what kind of timeline you want to get out from you know in in, in this country and what is the milestone and and also i think the the saying goodbye part is very hard uh yeah yeah the saying goodbye part is uh, hard i think for like you know um coming from other regions and working or study because you, you build a lot of like relationship with the person, uh, friendship and all that. And you then you can move on and with life and that then you have to like find another support uh, network. Um, especially if you are no family, like single lady that travel abroad and things like that. So it's make it even harder uh, to, to get help. 
It's so true though about the leaving part. I remember every summer in Singapore, you're kind of dreading it because you're like, oh, who's leaving this year? And now I have to kind of go and make an effort with new people. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think after a while, I see the um the the pros of it because when when I move after I move out from Singapore to Milan, my ex colleague actually introduced me to people in Milan. And when I'm in Milan, I <laughs> know people and move to London, and then they you know, introduce me, put me in touch. Uh, some is like professionally context and some is just, you know, help you out to kickstart your life. Yeah, yeah, that is very true. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess that the last question from our side really is um, FMCG um, is like a really interesting area for MBAs. Um, and I think there's there's kind of growing interest in like the industry as well. Um for MBAs who maybe want to move into these areas but don't have direct industry experience, what would mm-hmm. your advice be for them? Do you think it's possible to make that move? I think it's always possible um, because right now uh, it depends what kind of uh, you know uh, criteria or, or or your desire of positions. So if uh, uh, early early career like people like candidates are. Uh, like five year experience probably to go into like big company like L'Oreal Exilada is a bit of a far stretch, uh. But it's not like completely impossible. Uh, there's always a management trainee track for MBA to start at this early stage of their career. Uh, for example, like mid careers like myself or you know 10, 20 years of experience to pivot to in this beauty industry or FMCG, it's also possible. Well, you have to be very clever and strategically map out your skill, which one is transferable. Like, for example, if people work in like, uh, you know, uh, from Intel or market research companies and to come into FMCG, I would advise go to the customer market intelligence department. That is where you can get uh, into your foot into the door. For my case, I'm not from FMCG as well. So I'm from advertising. It's, it's even worse, like two... I, I, I was a creative in advertising. It's two, two hurdles to two walls to jump, um, you know, leap up. So I had to, I pitched I, I pitch myself in with um, uh, branding experience. And I say, look, I can do this kind of uh, communications um, plus the aesthetic for the, you know, aesthetic uh, eyes for all this judgments and stuff. And it helps because uh, FMCG always needs like, uh, it's a B2C business model. So, consumer is all in the frontier so everything you do you have to relate back to the consumer so so for me i choose you know marketing and branding to 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 enter into this industry does it make sense like if someone from like operational one i would not advise to go to finance so there is no transferable skill set so you have to find um a, a, a windows and match match that um match the skill uh transferable skill set and I think the the other part of it is, uh, you know, building industry FMCG, the incumbents companies are being challenged by a lot of challenge challenges brands, uh, all these indie brands or you know digital native brands. So it doesn't have to go like aim into all these MNC companies. You can always go to uh challenger brands. Um, for example, Drunk Elephant is a very popular one. Uh, to acquire them, but they also start like as a challenger brand. So the founder herself has um, not much of like uh, you know R and D experience, but 
you know, uh, I mean, like, there is also different kind of career, um, career um, trajectory roadmap or depends on the company kind of uh, growth stage and you have to match, you know, find a good uh, pitch story to pitch it in. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, about kind of not discounting the challenger brands, because I think when we think about this space, it's so easy to think about like the big global names, but there's so much kind of diversity out there as well. Yeah, like FMCGs, like back in UK or um, US, there's so many challenging challengers brands, like native startup. So I think it's a good, uh, you know, don't mind doing all this, um, you know, get your hands dirty or you know, have one uh, wearing few hats at once, but it's a good, good um, stepping stone to, you know, if that's the goal to get into a big MNC. But big MNC, again, is, um, yeah, quite stringent kind of recruitment process. Um, but again, it depends because um, it is the industry that are keep changing and also, you know, they appreciate creativity and innovation. So, yeah, maybe maybe there is another route to enter. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I found really interesting talking with Gladys was how she mentioned how Shiseido is more of a premium luxury brand is working towards figuring out how to sell more online or be more present online. And this is a big problem with luxury brands is you need to be um, desirable. And when you're online, it, it to use online, because you need to be online now, especially with coronavirus, with the shops not being as as busy, uh, but then finding the right balance of, of having online presence and not losing that uh, sense of customer experience, the desirability scarcity all these elements that make luxury luxury mm. yeah it's really hard to find a balance isn't it um but I guess that's also one of the things that makes um working in the industry so interesting as as you say particularly at the moment yeah absolutely I was thinking as well I mean some some brands have made a su- success of online I know Gucci has they've been really trying to do become more digital with their online presence, but also in, in the shops as well, use more digital uh, and data in their customer experience. Um, and also there was one brand, I forget, oh, I can't remember which, which one it was now, but they had a really cool website where you would go on and the icons for the items were actually on models that moved. So it was sort of like a video, like, like a two second GIF or video of the item. And it really enhanced the experience. But but again, I think that the customer experience, the luxury customer experience, it's so hard to replicate online because it is all about the senses, about the service. Mm. Yeah, it really is, and it is, isn't it? I think it's it is quite difficult to you can throw a lot of money at your website and you can make it a really great customer experience, but it's still not the same. The other thing that struck me was to talking about Gladys's experience. Not necessarily working in Asia, although that part was there, but being an expat and sort of your friends and your work and your work teams really become your family much more than I think they do in the West or when you're not an expat. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think it's especially if you're somewhere where the expat pop where the expat population is quite small. Um yeah. I mean, in my experience, it's great to um to kind of be able to form close bonds with your co-workers quickly. And I think that being an expat really helps with that. But I think also if you're in a country where there's a small or very close-knit expat community, it can also it can make things a bit tricky because um kind of your work and your social life all just kind of blur into one and it can be hard to get the space that you need yeah absolutely that's really true Uh, and I also find it can be hard when you leave because it makes saying goodbye that much harder (laughs) because the bonds have become so close yeah it's really true isn't it and you're always kind of it's always at the back of your mind oh you know how long is everyone going to stay for when are they going to move on to the next posting or yeah it does I think it being an expat brings like an incredible richness to your life and to your working experience as well but it does come with some of those those kind of less glamorous downsides I guess and I suppose that's why you know it's it's not for everyone that's all for today's modern MBA podcast I'm Kristen and I'm Marie If you like this episode, remember to hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. You can get access to articles and more great content by visiting our website, themodernmba.co.uk, Facebook and LinkedIn under The Modern MBA, and on Twitter at MBA Modern. Until next time, bye! Bye!